Hello fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me this week back again is Jasmine <laughs> Smith. Are you feeling okay today, Jasmine? I'm I'm making it. You're making it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you've been down, but you're back up. You're here with us today. Uh, yeah. We're glad that you're here. Um, today on the show, our guest is Michael Bowman. He's the Democratic candidate for treasurer. He was the Democratic candidate for treasurer back in 2019. We talked to him about his race this year we talked to him a little bit about his race last time and, and what he learned from it and how what he's applying to this year uh we talked to him about uh, also just about the place where he's from which is southwest louisville kind of his advice for for people who are running in that region which is a, a, a pretty swingy district across the across the state or in the state you know there's not a lot of very swing districts but that would definitely be one of them um and, and yeah i thought it was a really good interview you know we talked to him four years ago and, and it's very clear that we've all three grown as people uh you know we've uh, all three gotten older we're four years older and we've learned a lot both about you know running a show and also about like running for treasure so it uh, it was nice to talk to him again I, and yeah i definitely ask people to stick around to listen to that what did you think jasmine yeah i thought it was really good and i'm excited because we're starting to do these statewide candidate interviews and it it makes me feel a little bit energized about this gubernatorial election and these down ballot races when we talk to these candidates and hear their message and so yeah i'm excited that we're starting to do some of those interviews yeah it's it's definitely a good interview check it out for sure uh but on the show for this part we are going to be talking first of all about fancy farm that happened on saturday everybody got up and talked it was really something i'm going to recap kind of what you might have missed if you didn't watch it uh and then we're going to switch to talking a little bit about education issues so first of all jasmine's going to talk to us a little bit more about jason glass leaving that had just broke right when i was recording last week so uh we have learned a little bit more about why he's leaving and all that kind of stuff jasmine's going to go over that with us Uh, and then i'm going to talk to us about jcps's decision around how to uh, deal with SB 150, the anti-trans bill that passed in the legislature this year, uh, and, and kind of what their deal is there. And then we're going to end by talking about this thing that's kind of uh, come up a little bit uh, in the past couple of days, which is a letter that was written from uh, from UK Healthcare, I guess, is a UK hospital, some some uh, healthcare agency affiliated with the University of Kentucky, to James Tipton, who is a member of the legislature. So this is kind of been making the rounds on social media and definitely wanted to talk about it um this week uh because it's made so much news so without any further ado let's talk a little bit about fancy farm all right jasmine uh did you get a chance to watch any of fancy farm last saturday i watched the clips and videos later i didn't watch it live yeah, well, uh, you missed a good one. Uh, I yeah, will say, I, I usually catch the highlights. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, this is the year, the, the gubernatorial year is when it's the best, for sure. Um, yes. You know, it's it's fun to watch, you know, Charles Booker get up and talk about running for Senate. You know, we had, you know, uh, some in 1992, way back in the day, we actually had Al Gore, a candidate for vice president, come and talk. So that was pretty neat. Uh, but I think that this is the year when the executive branch offices are up for election, when Fancy Farm is always at its best. Um, all of the candidates for all of the executive branch offices were there on the Democratic and Republican side. So we heard about that, as well as nearly every office holder in Frankfurt and in Washington who was eligible to, to attend. So, you know, the state rep, the state senator and the U.S. congressman who represents Fancy Farm, as well as some of the statewide officers who are leaving, like Mike Harmon and Ryan Quarles. Um, you know, Democrats did did uh, deliver a few good zingers. Uh, Andy Bashir got up and, and gave some good ones about Robbie Mills. I actually think Andy Bashir's was was the one I enjoyed the most. Um, he, he was making jokes about how Robbie Mills was really low on the list of potential lieutenant governors uh, that Daniel Cameron had to pick from, um, and, and also mixed in a joke about Daniel Cameron's uh, pulling out of the Eric Dieter's rally. Um, when okay, here's the quote. Uh, Daniel Cameron recently told Eric Dieters he'd go to his big rally and then backed out. He told Eric he really wanted to come. He really did, but he had other things to do. That's exactly what Ryan Quarles told Daniel Cameron, unquote. So I thought that was a good zinger. Oh, that's really good. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, It was pretty good. Um, Pam Stevenson, I, I, you know what? 
Pam's real short in person. I don't, you know, you've been around her. Uh, yeah. It was kind of funny because like they had the podium and she's just like yelling up into it, which you know it's 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 tough for her, but she did a really good job. So, you know, she obviously knew what Russell Coleman and his buddies were going to say about her, which was about her bar status. And if you weren't paying attention to this kind of small story, she made news when it was revealed that she only practiced law in Indiana. Of course, she's been a military lawyer for most of her career, so she's been around for in, in a big way for a long time, be, doing big, important lawyer stuff, just not necessarily in the same way that civilian lawyers are. Um, so after ticking off like a, a list of the significant accomplishments she's had in the courtroom, uh, she said, quote, I know they want to make, make a big to-do about my bar status. I would, too, if I had to compete against my resume, unquote. So I felt like that was a nice, like probably the only comeback of the whole day, and I'll talk about that in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, my other favorite, um, I, I would say probably, you know, Andy and Pam were my top two favorites, but of the other people that spoke, you know, I, I do think Michael Bowman, our guest on the show, did a really nice job, but Sierra Inlow, I think, really acquitted herself well. I think, you know, she was the only person that hit the time limit, so she, you know, that she had a lot to say, um, and she did a really good job of kind of explaining her agricultural background, especially as somebody who, like, makes their home in Louisville, like, why should we elect you as uh, Secretary of Agriculture and or Agriculture Commissioner, and she had a good answer um, for that, and then also got some good digs in on Jonathan Schell, uh, she said that he avoided the forums that they'd been having for their race because she he uh, was too used to coming in second to her at FFA events. Uh, they are around the same age, so <laughs> I guess that is what they did uh, in in high school. Or I guess, yeah, yeah. I watched her video and I thought she did a really good job as well. It like being on that stage, I just cannot imagine how intimidating that is. Like I like public speaking, but like. It's a different I would thing. never want yeah. to do that. Um, and I thought she did a really good job and like was able to like project over like the jeering, you know, and I, I think you're right about her. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought she did it. I think everybody did a good job, but I think like those were the ones that I, I remembered the most that stood out. Yeah. yeah. She, uh, she had a really nice zinger that she had given at the, the bean supper the night before, uh, but she didn't get to it, unfortunately, uh, for her actual speech. Um, of course, Republicans got their zingers into Michael Adams hit Buddy Wheatley for his ancient DUI three different times. So, you know, don't uh, don't just keep telling it till somebody laughs, I guess. Uh, Russell Coleman hit Pam Stevenson for her bar status. You know, he you have to, you know, you have to no matter yeah, what. Absolutely. Uh, that's that's the joke that you make there. Uh, he did a good job, you know, with this joke there. And then Mitch McConnell, you know, the thing about Mitch McConnell, I, you know, say what you want to about him. I can't stand the guy, but he's really good at this event. He just says the stuff that just makes me so mad all the time. And that's what you want. That's what you want in somebody at this event. Somebody's going to make the other side upset. And he uh, always does it when he talks about Democrats' long-term prospects. Prospects. Um, you know, he looked really sick. Um, clearly, whatever happened to him uh, uh, last week is having some sort of effect. He's, he's pretty old. Um, but the thing is, like, you know, he still came out and he still did it. He listened to all those folks yell at him to retire, and he just looked them right down and told them they sucked. So, you know, that's what you want yeah. out of this event. Uh, so so that is that is what it is. Um, I do think Republicans had two speeches that were spectacularly bad. Um, the first one is, is Daniel Cameron. He just did, he just did really bad. I, I I wonder about like what he's trying to accomplish at an event like Fancy Farm. His campaign is basically only about trans kids and COVID. Uh, and and I, I think there are people who care about that kind of stuff, but that's not like the universe of, of voters that is gonna like uh, you know win win him the election. Um, and then he like mixed in vote these jokes about trans kids and COVID in with like jokes about Hunter Biden and Bud Light. So if you are already a conservative activist, uh, you're gonna laugh at that. But if you're not, if you're a moderate voter who's just like, I wonder how he's gonna zing Andy Bashir. I might vote for this guy if he makes some good jokes. I just don't think that that's gonna do it for you. Like who cares? Uh, you know, maybe it's good to just amp up your base. I think that there's something to be said for that, but I really just don't think Daniel Cameron did anything to kind of expand his base at all in a speech like this when he had an opportunity to talk about a lot of stuff that that uh, that Andy Bashir had done over the past you know three and a half years. The worst speech, though, 
by far was Jamie Comer. Oh my gosh, this was truly, truly terrible. Comer's been basically his entire allotted time talking about his investigation into Hunter Biden and basically was like trying to give us like minute details about the types of forms that he'd uncovered and who said what during their testimony to his committee. I think that even if this his investigations were like big blockbusters that uncovered a lot of criminal uh, doings, which which they're not, to be clear, uh, this would still have been super boring and not the venue to be talking about this. Like under no circumstances at Fancy Farm should you be talking about 1023 forms. That's just like I cannot imagine a a space where like specific tax forms being uh, an important thing to talk about at, at Fancy Farm. But you know, whatever. He got it done. He did his little speech and, and then and then walked off. I think the most surprising thing of the whole day was Ryan Quarles getting up to speak. So he's eligible to speak because he's a statewide elected official. And he got up and basically made a farewell speech. Um, he talked about, you know, how it was a big privilege of his to be the agriculture commissioner and how he's really appreciated the folks in West Kentucky, etc. But then he did not at any point say he's supporting daniel cameron vote for daniel cameron and did not mention anybody on the ticket he mostly just like talked about how much he liked being an agriculture commissioner said goodbye and then walked off i thought that was that was maybe the most brutal thing that anybody did the whole day Uh, i mean andy Bashir can land some jokes but ryan quarrel's getting up and being like here i'm giving a speech about me goodbye is really really something so yeah uh that was that was it uh it was uh it was an event that was fun to watch for kentucky politics junkies but you know what's the purpose for events like this in today's world uh i think it used to be like a place for candidates to kind of like mix it up you know they're talking about you you're talking about them they're making jokes about you you're hitting them with comebacks um and it used to be this like this this saying that was you can't win your election at fancy farm but you can lose it and I think people have really taken that to heart. So now basically people just have the speech that they're going to give. Everybody's yelling at them. And it's a, a an exercise in being able to stay focused and read what's on the page. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's not as fun. You know, it's just not as fun when people are not like mixing it up, like coming back at people for the jokes that they just made, reacting to the things that are happening. Uh, you know, there's too much at risk to to uh, risk making a gaffe or something like that. So I get why it is like that. It's just it's the smartest way to do it, but it's just not as fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I am still glad the event exists. It's it's a slice of history. It's 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 about like you know going to like a, a Renaissance fair, but for American politics or something like that. That's kind of what the event has turned into. Um, and I'm glad that we get as many people to come as we do. So that's my wrap up of Fancy Farm, Jasmine. Uh, you said you didn't. You only watched the highlights. Was there anything that you saw in those highlights that I didn't mention that you want to make sure we talk about? No, I think you hit all the things that I would have said as well. But I am just glad to see a strong Democrat presence there this year because I remember a year ago talking about Fancy Farm, and it's in a very conservative part of the state um but the event itself had just become a lot more conservative it felt like and not many democrats were speaking there and of course i know it's a statewide election year and that's that's why there's a a better democratic presence but i'm just happy to see it um that i think it would be a missed opportunity if democrats didn't go um and there were a lot of bashir supporters there um who are, you know, drowning out Daniel Cameron. And I was glad to see that, um, you know, Democrats were well represented this year. I think the other thing about Fancy Farm um, this year that was interesting to see is like national media talking about it because (laughs) they don't get it. Um, And that's something that we can all unite on. Yeah, you know, it it is like, and not just national, international media. I saw like the the Daily Mail getting involved. So, you know, that's good for a laugh. You know, any time there's a joke at Mitch McConnell's expense, even if it's wrong, you know, I, I have to laugh at least a little bit. So, all right, that's enough about Fancy Farm. Jasmine, talk to us about Jason Glass. Okay, so in a quick hit last week, Robert shared that Jason Glass is leaving his role as education commissioner in Kentucky. He's going to leave the job on September 29th to become an associate vice president of teaching and learning at Western Michigan University. 
Jason Glass worked as the education commissioner during the pandemic and during two devastating weather disasters. Um, and he, he dealt with a lot. He dealt with these like first, like the anti CRT movement and then anti LGBTQ policies. And he had to deal with a lot during his tenure as education commissioner. Um, and we've known that he'd been looking for a new position since at least May uh, because it became public that he was a finalist to become the superintendent of Baltimore County Public Schools. And he didn't get that job. Um, but at the time, he stated, at this point in my career, I'm seeking a place where our family can put down roots and where I can have a long-term and meaningful impact on an education system. Um, and he has also said, my decision to leave was influenced by the political situation that we find ourselves in in Kentucky, but also in many other places across the nation. I do not wish to be part of implementing the dangerous and unconstitutional anti-LGBTQ law that the legislature passed this last session. So it's time for me to move on. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I think it's understandable um, why he doesn't want to do that job anymore. <laughs> um, yeah. He's been, he's been kind of the main focus of um, a lot of like the Republicans, campaign um and daniel cameron tweeted one down one to go the kba will hold a meeting later this month to discuss steps on selecting the interim commissioner so um we wish jason glass well i'm sorry for what he had to endure here um you know robert what do you think about jason glass moving on from kentucky yeah, you know, I, I said a lot of this last week, but I just think it's a it's just a shame, right? You know, he yeah. clearly, you know, he uprooted his life. He left a job that he had in Colorado to come home. You know, this is his home. He wanted to be the education commissioner in Kentucky. Andy Bashir really felt like, and I think a lot of us felt like at the time that he hit a home run by getting somebody that was so well qualified that was willing to do the job here in Kentucky. And just to be constantly attacked I mean, it, it's a national mood. It, it, national Republicans are coming after trans kids. They're coming after this, like, whatever CRT even means. Um, and, and education has become a major target for conservative activists in in the past few years. And that's just a really sad situation that Jason Glass got swept up into it. I don't blame him at all for moving. I, I feel like I would have moved if, he, if I were him as well. It's just really, really too bad because we had somebody who was doing really good work making a lot of really good progress in the face of a lot of significant challenges. And I just think that whoever we get after him uh, is just not going to be as good because anybody who's going to be good at this job isn't going to want to take it because they're smarter than wanting to have to deal with all of the Republican <laughs> crap that, uh, you know, Jason Glass had to deal with. So uh, really unfortunate. Happy for him. Sad for us. Uh, and also a little scared about what the KD yeah. KBE is going to be able to, to, to get. Um, both as interim commissioner and, you know, there is a law. So I do that was passed in the last session that I think gives the Republicans some control over this, this situation with the KBE. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but whatever it is, it's uh, not going to make the search better. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think it, it makes it very difficult to follow him in that job um, because, you know, like the stress that it entails and the attacks that you're going to get and and the person may have to implement policies like that they don't believe in that they know will harm students and so um it would be really difficult yep. uh, to do that job and you're right it's just a shame yep all right, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about SB. Well, I guess we're going to keep talking about SB 150. We're not switching gears entirely. We're, we're uh, just switching the level of education we're talking about. So um, we're going to talk about JCPS and their decisions around SB 150 that just happened yesterday, August the 7th. Uh, and on that day, the JCPS school board voted 5-2 to two to approve a district policy that's a little different than the two policies the board were considering at a similar meeting a couple weeks ago. So if you were paying attention to this uh, issue a couple weeks ago, you may remember that the board had two ideas kind of put forth. And one of them was to adopt a policy that basically did not comply with SB 150 that, that basically was like, you know, this is a constitutional violation, blah, blah, blah. Like, we're just not going to do it. 
Um, that actually it almost passed, but it didn't pass on a three to three tie. So there were some people that didn't vote. There were some people that I was surprised voted no on that. I think that they were really concerned with the the legal situation and how much that opened them up to the legal bills that would result from it. Uh, but but that straight do not comply uh, did not pass. The other policy that was up for consideration was basically a com- they would comply, but there would be like a statement of concern that didn't really have any teeth. So the school board decided to put that on the table and then come back a couple of weeks later and, and pass something different. So they had to have a policy in place. The JCPS school board did have to have a policy in place by the 9th, which is when school starts. You have to have all your policies locked in by state law. That is required that you have all your policies locked in by the start of school. So they had to vote on it this week. So they came forward with a new policy. This is the kind of the compromise that was struck. Uh, The board voted to allow for students with a diagnosis of gender dysphoria to receive an IEP Uh, which allows them to be accepted from following SB 150 when it comes to things like pronouns and bathroom usage. So if you are able to document that you have some, uh, you know, this issue, uh, then you are basically accepted. So that's that's good news for a lot of people. It's good news for parents and families who are who had a lot of concern for how their trans kids are going to be treated in schools. Um, I think it just blows Republicans' minds that there are t- parents out there that support their children uh, in in the midst of this. And so you know this just ensures that there is uh, support for parents' decisions around how to raise their own children. Um, and, and also ensures that the state stays out of their family's plan for dealing with this situation. But it, it isn't perfect, and it does provide a lot of problems for trans kids who are not in a supportive environment. Um, mm-hmm. That That's really tough. Uh, if you can't document this medical condition, um, you know, you, you basically can't, um, you basically can't be, be protected. You can't get that IEP. You have to basically have that have that support of your family in order to get that IEP in place, in order to get uh, exempted from SB 150. That is kind of different than the policy they would have put in place a couple of weeks ago, but this specific policy does kind of provide a significant level of legal protections and at least makes the case a lot more more difficult for the proponents of SB 150 and those who are opposed to trans children. Um, You know, there... It, there, there were a lot of like conflicting stories last night about how everybody felt. Like the high, the the headline in the uh, WFPL, the the NPR affiliate in Louisville, that basically said like JCPS bends to SB one hundred and fifty. But then uh, Surge, standing up for racial justice, which is a group that has been like in the trenches fighting uh, to not comply with SB one hundred and fifty, they basically put out a, a, a statement saying this is a victory for all those who believe that our most vulnerable students matter. That's a quote. So. Um, you know, I don't really know what to think about it. It has kind of like come down in the middle. Um, I think it's probably good. Um, I think it's probably as good as we were going to get with the school board that we have. I think it does provide some level of protection for a lot of trans kids. It's just a little unfortunate um, that some of these trans kids who don't have a supportive environment at home can't find one at school either. It did really aggravate some of the proponents of the bill, uh, including Shane Baker of Somerset, who the Courier-Journal quoted as saying that the board disregarded the law that was passed. So that um, that is stirring up some consternation in some folks outside of Louisville, worth, worth saying. Uh, the people who are mad are not necessarily from in town. Um, and, and what's next for this? There definitely are going to be some sort of lawsuits at some point. The, the uh, JCPS is going to be subject to legal fees and a lot of headaches around what they're going to do around this and and conservatives are likely going to sue the district for allowing uh you know some modicum of not following sb 150 i think it's going to end up in the kentucky supreme court and i wouldn't be surprised if it went even further all the way up to the supreme court of the united states which is dealing with a lot of these kind of issues as as we move forward so jasmine what do you think about the policy and what do you think about the future of it as it as it kind of moves to the legal forum yeah, I think that it's it's definitely a positive, even if it's not as good as it could be um, for trans kids. And I know that a lot of hard work was put into trying to find a way um, to comply, but also protect kids the best they could. And so I think the outcome is definitely positive. Um, 
as far as the lawsuit goes, I used to like have a a decent feeling about like how things would go, especially like on constitutional issues. And I think like since Trump was elected and, and you know put so many conservative justices and judges um, into slots with lifetime appointments, I, I just think like. The law is what these people say it is, um, and yeah, we can make our best guess about it. Um, but depending on who gets the case, um, you don't know what could happen anymore. Yeah, and, and y- there's also still a lawsuit on the constitutionality of the bill. Um, so, th- you know, that's something that we have to determine as well. Yep, there's a lot of things up in the air. There's a lot of stuff kind of going on with, um, but you know, every every part of the legal situation because those are federal cases, I think, right? The ones that are pending right now about the oh no, that's those are state cases. I don't know. They're, no, they're federal. Okay, those are federal. I was right the first time. I think likely the JCPS cases will be in state courts to start with, um, and may make the jump if uh, if they are, uh, you know, the, there are constitutional questions at uh, the heart of this case. And, and those get adjudicated all the way up to the Supreme Court sometimes. So, yeah, a lot to a lot to process. Good luck to the kids starting school this week, if you're listening. Uh, you know, best of luck. Uh, really early start this year. Tough. tough yeah. Tough for the kids. Um, all right, Jasmine, tell us what we need to know about this James Tipton letter. Okay, so during this year's gubernatorial race, um, Republicans have been – using like the talking point that Andy Bashir supports gender reassignment surgery for children. They, they are calling it genital mutilation and that Andy Bashir supports that. And they reference his veto of Senate bill 150 to support that claim. Um, and this is re- like become a large enough thing that Bashir has had to address it in ads and in statements. Um, Bashir's campaign spokesperson has said, Andy Bashir has always opposed gender reassignment surgeries for minors, which do not happen in Kentucky. Um, And then a quote from Bashir, I've never been for gender reassignment surgeries and they don't happen in Kentucky. What I'm absolutely opposed to is tearing away the rights of parents to make critical and important medical decisions for their kids. Families should be making these decisions, not big government. To which Republicans say, then he should have signed the bill. Um, but the bill did a, a lot more than banning these surgeries. We know that um, it includes bathroom policies and, and all these things that affect schools and also bans um, hormone therapy and all all of these other things. Um, but and there's also an ad from a pack that says that Bashir would allow sex changes for children as young as eight or nine years old. I don't know where that comes from. Um, but that's something that's been alleged as well. Now, now there is a letter. Oh my God. It's fine. Sorry. It's so loud to me. Now there's a letter from March 2nd of this year that was addressed to representative James Tipton from the university of Kentucky regarding their transform clinic. And that's been making the rounds on social media. It was first shared by free beacon, um, which is like a conservative website. news website. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the letter states that the services they provide in the Transform Clinic are in accordance with national guidelines for standards of care and accepted research-based practices. They say that they provide primary care and mental health services, and it notes that any treatment provided is provided with explicit parent or guardian consent. They state that they do not provide puberty blockers, but may provide hormone therapy for youth 14 and older with informed consent from a parent or guardian. They also state that they do not perform genital reassignment surgery on minors. It does, however, state that they have performed a small number of non-genital surgeries, such as mastectomies, on 16 to 18-year-olds in recent years. It it doesn't provide much more specific information other than stating that a lot of factors are considered in these cases and also done with parent consent and, and things like that. But um, 
we don't know like how many, what were the surgeries, why were they performed, what were the ages, when did they happen? Um, there's a lot of things that we don't know. And this letter is from March, um, but was never seen until now, a couple months before the election. Um, and and this, you know, involves an issue that was made to be like the focal point of this legislative session. And this letter was never shown to anyone. And UK was never brought to Frankfurt to provide more information so that we could have a bill that makes sense. Um, and so I don't know. I just have a lot of questions about this and like why UK you know, I know why they wouldn't want to get involved, but um, it seems like if this had been brought up in March, um, we could have maybe made better policy based on information from the university. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's a lot going on here, clearly. Uh, I think the points that you bring up about timing and why is this being brought out now are good ones. I think the answer is because now is the time when they could extract the largest effect on the, you know, gubernatorial campaign. Right. Yeah. I know. I know that. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it's it's just like a a strange thing um, that we we have this information now, but it's very vague, and we don't know. Um, it, the the thing about what it is they're actually doing the thing about the information that's in in this is that it's you know it's a complicated subject involving the health care of children for mental health issues right and it is like um what is ethical to do when i mean and these are thorny yeah. questions that people who are above board who are really thinking about the best way to 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 treat children who uh you know are transgender or are you know are questioning their gender assignment like people who are thinking about this in in the best possible way are, are still trying to figure all of this out now and, and you know they they are making decisions uh that they are trying to do the best that they can at and everybody i think is do making these decisions um with the informed consent of the parents um with uh you know the 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 at the request of the children and families and in conjunction with all of this uh and it is just like this is healthcare that is being taken care of at the family level and and mm -hmm. basically what's happening at this point is you know we're trying to at this point now talk about like what sex reassignment surgery why the republicans are calling it like genital mutilation yeah. and they're basically just taking this like really nuanced really complicated really just like life affirming or like this this like just really difficult subject and boiling it down into something that's gonna hurt andy Bashir. that's like all mm -hmm. they're trying to do that's what they're trying to do with this letter and it's just such a shame like it just show it's just so hard to sit with this right that that all they care about is is getting rid of Andy Bashir, and they don't care who they have to steamroll in order to do it. And like, it doesn't matter um, about these kids. It doesn't matter what their parents want them to do. It doesn't matter what they want to do. All that matters is that there's enough people out in this state who might think it's gross that we can then exploit this in order to get the guy that we don't like out of office. Uh, and and if it costs us the lives of some of these trans kids, who cares? Uh, that's basically how I feel about it, and that's kind of what I think is is happening with with this letter and it's just just yeah it's just really and it, unfortunate and if you read it 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 seems very clear to me that all they're trying to do is provide the best ethical care for youth they provide primary care services like any you know your regular doctor visits they provide mental health services you know they do all these other things and they're very clear about the things they don't do they don't do puberty blockers. They don't do genital gender reassignment surgery for minors. You know, like this is just a very clear picture of how they're trying to provide the best care and comply with national standards of care and evidence-based practices. And I mean, all of that is being ignored to, to say you performed these other surgeries and yeah 
I, you know, all I, of a sudden now, instead of like talking about the healthcare for children and the best way to take care of kids, we're talking about like whether or not Andy Bashir is a hypocrite for saying right. that we don't do uh, that. This doesn't happen here, and whether or not like top surgery for uh, trans boys like counts as you know gender reassignment. Like all of a sudden, we're in the middle of this yeah. debate for like no one knows how small a number of these people are. Whether it's still happening, there's a lot of open questions, and it doesn't even matter. Like nobody cares. They just say, "Oh, we caught you in a situation that may or may not have been a." And now we got to parse words and think about what all this means uh, in a way that has nothing to do with, with with how to treat trans kids and everything to do with how to win an election for Daniel Cameron. Right. I I think that this information would have been good to know for stakeholders when bills were being discussed. Um, but it, it's very clear, like that. You know what? They didn't use it for that. Uh, yeah. they, yeah. they use they're using it to call Andy Bashir a liar. We don't know if he even knew about any of this. So yeah, yeah. Very. It's just it just makes it very few things in this world make me as mad as stuff like this. So there we go. Let's we're talking. About, let's move on uh, to our last thing. Uh, unless you have anything else to say about it, anything else you want to say? No. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to your your last quick hit that we have to talk about. All right, so Mackenzie Cameron, Daniel Cameron's wife, has launched a Moms for Cameron group, and they held an event last week in Newport, which is in northern Kentucky. Um, She's a former teacher, and much of her message involved education. Um, She said she made this claim. She said, what we're seeing in the classroom is some of these ideas being filtered in. I saw Black Lives Matter protests in tasks for eight-year-olds. I saw students having to color dresses on boys on cutouts at my school that I taught at. This is not some ideas that people are saying is not happening. I saw it firsthand. Um, wild stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, just like <laughs> yeah. wild things to say. I- um, Kelly Paul, uh, Rand Paul's wife, uh, tweeted out her support for Moms for Cameron. Um, the state senator up there, Shelly Fromeyer, um, she was in attendance at the event. Um, so we have this group that's Moms for Cameron that was started by Daniel Cameron's wife, Mackenzie. Yeah. Uh, the, the claims that she made, I think, were the thing that really stuck out to me about this. Yeah. Uh, you know, all of the JC, I, I, I guess she was a teacher in JCPS. I don't know for that for a total fact. They live in Louisville. So that would have made sense. But I saw a lot of JCPS teachers responding to this to being like, this is just absolutely false. Like, I, you know, they were like, I would love for her to provide some modicum of proof yeah, or to back this, yeah. back this up with any kind of evidence. Um, you know, and, and just just, you know, there wasn't any, first of all. There's a lot of reasons to think that this is embellished or not true at all. Um, and there was no challenging of it whatsoever. So just th- this is what this campaign is about. You know, we just got done talking about this this letter from James Tipton. You know, the moms for Daniel Cameron, which, you know, typically is about like we want better education policies for our children or we want to make sure that there's activities for them or whatever. It's just consumed with trans issues. Um, that's all Daniel Cameron and all any of the Republicans want to talk about at all. Um, and, and it's just it's it's just crazy that this is what this campaign has become. Uh, instead of focusing on economic development, instead of focusing on the future of Kentucky's, uh, you know, uh, a lot of things that we could have been talking about. And instead, we're just talking about trans issues. So, yeah, are just really, really annoying uh, and unfortunate. So there you go. Anything else you want to say about moms for Cameron, Jasmine? No, not me either. All right. That's enough for this part of this show. Let's get to our interview with Michael Bowman. Michael Bowman is the Democratic candidate for treasurer in Kentucky. After winning the primary for the same office in 2019, Mr. Bowman served as the Democratic candidate in the general election later that year. While that election did not go his way, he was able to serve in state government afterwards, first as a member of Andy Bashir's transition team and then later as staff for the administration. Mr. Bowman is from Valley Station in Louisville and attended Holy Cross High School and the University of Louisville. He's worked in the finance industry and has also been a legislative assistant for Cindy Fowler on Louisville's Metro Council. So, Michael Bowman, welcome back to my old Kentucky podcast. Thanks for having me. 
yeah, so you ran for this office in the last election and, you know, decided to go again, right? You decided to run again for it. Um, the office of treasurer, you know, it, it, a lot of people have a lot to say about it. Some people say, you know, it doesn't do anything. Other people say, like, it's really important. So, um, you know, what is your vision for the office? I, I think that different people have done different things for it, but it kind of does allow you as a person in that office to kind of make of it what you will. So I would really like to hear why you want to be the treasurer and what you would do if you were elected to that position. Certainly. Uh, well, you know, the first thing, this this office is important in the way that it provides a constitutional check and balance to the not only the administration, but the legislature. Uh, it This is the accountability officer for how our tax dollars are received, how they're accounted for, and then how we expend them. So um, that alone makes it something that is worthy of having it as an independently elected office that is answerable directly to the people. Uh, now, as far as what I would do with the office, uh, as you pointed out, um, there are not necessarily uh, very many constitutionally uh, outlined duties, but over the years, the treasurer has been uh, a person who has ex officio been a member of boards and commissions that drive, quite honestly, a lot of policy for Kentucky that people don't generally know about. Uh, when you're talking about the Kentucky Investment Commission, how best are we investing our short-term dollars, long-term dollars to get maximum gains and returns for Kentucky? Uh, or when we're talking about our teacher's retirement uh, system, when we have uh, a treasurer who can actually sit on that board and understand how best to invest dollars that will produce returns for our uh, teachers, uh, the retirees. You know, these are these are things that impact people in Kentucky. And the treasurer as an elected official can have uh, an outsized influence on those. And I think, uh, you know, something I know that last time I was on this program uh, we talked about is the fact that you are one of seven elected people for state government statewide. So that's a that's a very small group for a, a state of 4.5 million people. It gives you an, a platform to be able to advocate whether you're from Western Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky, Northern Kentucky, or anywhere in between. So that's something um, my vision would be to ensure that we are bringing that office out to people, making um, making it available so they understand what services are there provided that, that can be provided to them, as well as the impact the treasurer does have on aspects of their everyday life, uh, particularly through those boards and commissions. I think a lot of people are surprised to find uh, what the treasurer's uh, influence would be in the, in those capacities. Yeah, I think that's interesting to hear about the boards and commissions that the treasurer sits on, because that's something that I didn't really know. Uh, maybe you told us that last time and I've forgotten it, but it's it's important for people to know that um, because a lot of people aren't sure what the treasurer does. So your first run um, in 2019 was your first statewide campaign. Can you tell us a bit about what you learned then that you're applying towards your race now in 2023? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, building the network that's necessary for a statewide race is not easy. Uh, Kentucky uh, may not be the largest state in the union, but it's not necessarily small. So yeah. it, it is it is difficult to be able to go from one end to the other and be be effective in, in uh, putting your message out there for for people to know. So building that network was a huge thing. Um, I, I shortly after, in, in all honesty, after the beginning of the pandemic, uh, I had resolved to uh, run for this office again. Um, there, in particular, some of the actions that the current treasurer had taken uh, in an effort to undermine Governor Bashir's efforts to keep Kentuckians safe during the pandemic, uh, opening unnecessary investigations into his actions, uh, using his emergency powers as governor to ensure that that the people of Kentucky are, are being and maintaining safety. Uh, it was something that honestly proved that, the, you know, every election is important, even a, even a race is as simple as what some people consider simple, uh, the treasurer's office. And that's that resolved myself to step back up. Uh, part of that is because of my background. As, as you pointed out, I have experience in the financial industry. I will be the first treasurer elected in nearly 40 years that has that kind of background. Um, and then also the fact that it would be uh, an open seat that you wouldn't necessarily have to challenge an incumbent who has an entrenched. Uh, mm -hmm. So that that was something I thought was an opportunity for us to be able to to put someone, a Democrat in this in this office that could not uh, constantly fight against uh, Governor Bashir, but be a partner in making sure that we're doing the best things we can for Kentuckians. 
So compared to 2019, how do you feel about the energy of the campaign this year? Do you feel like people are more excited, less excited, about the same? I would I would say more. Uh, I think we we saw four years ago what um, the the negative emotion of being against a guy like Matt Bevan brought out, mm-hmm. which was significant and palpable for sure. Yeah. Uh, but I think this one has been what the promise of what Governor Bashir has been able to accomplish over the past three and a half years, uh, being a governor who is doing and making decisions to benefit Kentuckians, regardless of whether or not they voted for him. And I think that kind of it's it's it bears out in the polls. You know, two weeks ago, the morning consult had a poll that showed him at 64 percent approval rating in Kentucky. So think about that. A, a Democratic governor in a what most people would by and large say it is a ruby red state mm-hmm. having 64 percent and and very high 50 50 mark among people who identify as conservative republicans so when, when we're talking about what he brings and elicits uh, as part of his candidacy to be to run for re-election uh, the the dynamic is is different the the people who are here are different the type of work they're willing to do is different and i think that's something that um, we've seen in all of our races on the down ballot is that we have a lot of energy around what the governor brings and that they are interested in making sure that he has the help he needs in Frankfurt to be even more successful than he was in his first term. Yeah, well, that's really good to hear. And and I think you're probably right about that. Um, So running for a down ballot race sometimes makes it a little difficult to stand out from the governor at the top of the ticket. So what are some ways that you're trying to make yourself known as an individual during the campaign? Certainly. Uh, to the point of I would be the first uh, person in nearly 40 years that has the financial background to be treasurer. That's that's first mm-hmm. and foremost. I think a lot of people are surprised to see that it's been nearly four decades since we've had someone with that kind of skill set. Uh, but beyond that, it's uh, being in a unique position to have had worked in the administration um, a lot of what the governor has done is a lot of the work I've done for him. So uh, I am absolutely going to take some credit for some of the things that that the governor's been able to accomplish in those three and a half years, uh, particularly the the broadband uh, deployment. We uh, I oversaw a federal grant that that set the stage for uh, that program. So uh, these are the things that uh, for myself, I'm making sure people know and understand. I think the other piece is, We've for two terms now seen what happens when we have a governor and a down ballot officer who is opposed to the governor. When when Matt Bevan was governor and Andy Bashir was lieutenant uh, was attorney general, uh, we saw a situation where um, if we had not had an attorney general, what could have Matt what could Matt Bevan have gotten away with? Uh, and then on the converse, if we had had someone other than Daniel Cameron how much more could Andy have accomplished? So uh, I think it's important to point out that it's not the governor alone, that it's mm-hmm. it's a team effort at the executive level and uh, to have not only a treasurer, but an attorney general and a secretary of state and an auditor and a commissioner of agriculture who arguably is as powerful in terms of policy setting and uh, being able to drive Kentucky's economy as the governor is. So, you know, these are offices that we need to be uniform on and, and provide that support to uh, Governor Bashir in his next term, because that's how we will see and realize some some true success. Yeah, definitely. So we're talking to you um, right after Fancy Farm, and you recently spoke there for the second time. So uh, can you tell us how this year's event compared to 2019 and how you felt taking the stage this year compared to last time? You know, being a, a longtime observer of Fancy Farm, four years ago was certainly uh, a level of anxiousness and anxiety about uh, being the person who is the focal point of all, all that energy out in the crowd, whether negative or positive. <laughs> um, I can tell you the second time around, a little bit easier, but not by much. Yeah. Uh, I will say that uh, the energy that was, particularly on the Democrats, the energy that was brought was was incredible. Uh, you know, the the people who are interested in seeing Governor Bashir reelected and giving him the support he needs in electing the down ballot officers uh, was very evident. And um, I think we've seen a national news, even though for some reason they don't understand that Fancy Farm is exactly this situation where you heckle the the uh, speaker. But uh, 
to the point where they could even hear it through the TV uh, when Senator McConnell was mm-hmm. on stage and the chance of retiring. So, um, you know, for them to be that loud and for it to translate through the the TV like that is not something that's normal. Um, I don't think people realize until you're actually at Fancy Farm how loud it is. But, you know, the energy was certainly there this time around. So uh, it was exciting. And, you know, we, we put our message out there and uh, dug a little into the opposite on the, on the opposite opposition, uh, like we're supposed to. So, yeah, um, but it was all, it was a, it was a great time. I, I, you know, I thought you did a really good job. Uh, I am not at all jealous of you having to do that, <laughs> yeah, up in front of all those people, but I'm maybe slightly jealous to get up in front of a TV audience, uh, in front of a bunch of people and be able to just, you know, lay into Mitch McConnell. Like that was, that's gotta be like a career highlight, no matter where it goes. Like I was in, I, I, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, so you uh, personally are from Louisville. You're from the Valley Station neighborhood, um, and, and you've got a long history there. You've got a long history of you know county party work, uh, organizing down in that part of the city. Um, and, and that area is one of the you know honestly one of the most swingy kind of areas in the whole state, where it does kind of go back and forth. It elects Republicans. It elects Democrats to, to offices all up and down the ballots. They're very open to electing Democrats, and they're very open to electing Republicans. Um, so as somebody who is from one of these areas where, where you know winning is attainable but isn't guaranteed, what would be kind of your advice uh, to Democrats look, who are looking at you know the elections this year, like yourself and, and everybody else on the ticket, but also looking forward to 2024 and the legislative elections where there are a lot of opportunities for Democrats and that part of the city, and then even beyond uh, to, to other other elections in the future. Uh, for people who are who are looking at and thinking about voters in that part of the, the state, uh, South Louisville, Southwest Louisville, what, what would be your, your advice to them? Uh, you know, I think uh, something that we as a party, as, as Democrats, uh, we, we need to not take people for granted. Uh, we, we have to be and be present and show up where people are. And I think that's something that's borne out in what we did. Uh, you know, you mentioned my work, uh, as a member of the democratic executive committee and, uh, working on a variety of campaigns from Senator David Yates to Councilwoman Fowler and, uh, everyone in between. Um, you know, when we show up to people's doors, when we're actually making the effort on the ground to put ourselves in front of them, uh, not not necessarily as a candidate uh, personally, but having a campaign that is visible and there and actually engaging in those communities, that that carries a lot of weight. And I think Valley Station serves as something of a microcosm for for the greater experience in parts and other parts of Kentucky where we have cities and, and, and communities and counties that uh, have traditionally been uh, of one particular party, but have become swingier in, in some ways. And um, I think if anything, the 2016 election taught us um, at a national level is you cannot take something for granted just because it's historically been there for you. And, and that was what led to, unfortunately, Hillary Clinton's defeat in states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, uh, having an, an actual campaign that shows the interest in those states and that, you know, I've always been here for you. You've always been here for me, but I'm here for you today is a is a critical piece to convincing people that um, they're not being shut out or left behind or taken for granted. And that's something that is part of my work. I always ensured um, as far as, you know, uh, any candidate that would come to Valley Station or seek to try and offset where they don't think they're strong somewhere else. Uh, I mean, a perfect example uh, is in 2010 when 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 then candidate Greg Fisher uh, had a, uh, you know, competitive primary against uh, Jim King and David Tandy and a variety of other people. Uh, He had to find a place where he knew he could make a connection and he spent significant time in this area and it bore out in the results. He won uh, out of the 28 precincts that com- uh, that comprise my legislative district, he won all but two of them. So, you know, that that shows you when you show up and you're there and you're present that that is a winning strategy regardless of of where you're at. And I, and I think that's something that we as a party need to ensure that we plan on and do and execute, uh, not just at River Valley Station, but um, across, across the Commonwealth. I think there's plenty of opportunity for us to reclaim ground that a lot of people today would think is something that a Democrat wouldn't have a a snowball's chance in getting back. But I think based on my experience being out in these communities campaigning now twice statewide, 
um, I think that's something of a, a of a mistake. I think we need to really invest in those communities just as well as we do the ones that uh, are consistently showing up for us. Mm-hmm. So back in 2019, you ran against Allison Ball, who was an incumbent and a candidate that a lot of people who lead the Kentucky GOP were very excited about. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned that this time around it's an open seat um, and you're facing a Republican candidate that I felt like I heard, you know, heard of at least in the primary. So tell us about how your opponent this time around contrasts with running against Allison Ball in 2019. Um, I hate to say that Allison is probably a little bit more dynamic than my opponent. So uh, in this election, uh, you know, I think uh, my, my opponent is someone who is a 24 year uh, elected official. He's he's been a what's you know, if, if anybody who says they've been in office for 20 years isn't someone who calls themselves a uh, p- career politician, then. Uh, they need to have something re-examined about themselves. But uh, he's been a county attorney for a small county, Garrett County, for 24 years. He's attempted to run for other offices in the legislature unsuccessfully. And he he honestly has is, is wholly unqualified for the job. You have a, a, a dynamic where at least uh, Allison, as a tax attorney, a uh, bankruptcy attorney, um, had some experience dealing with people's financial issues. Uh, whereas as, as county attorney in this situation, he's had very little hands-on experience dealing with, with people, with the financial implications of, of this job. Uh, and you, you hear that bear out in his, uh, his speeches and how he talks about the office. Uh, he relies on the talking points of being anti-woke and, and that we save too much and spend too little, but he doesn't tell you is that it's his party that controls the purse strings and that this governor has ensured that we've had the largest rainy day fund of any governor in the history of the Commonwealth. So uh, they're all disingenuous uh, statements that he's making on the campaign trail. My job, of course, is to ensure that people know that. (laughs) And uh, that's, I think, going to be something that uh, you'll see me focus on over the next three months. I I will say that he has... um, come out of a primary where he had to spend nearly $300,000 of his own money to be able to be successful in said primary. And uh, so he clearly has access to resources to be able to put out his message. Um, You know, we've, as the campaign, done some research polling ourselves internally that shows when you compare the two messages, uh, I I went out. So it, it tells me that this race is competitive when we can get the message out across Kentucky that people would choose me over my opponent based on not only my qualifications, but the, the tone of my message as, I, as I'm giving it. And I think that's something that uh, you see reflected through Andy Bashir. He, he would rather engage in what we've done for Kentucky than these political talking points mm-hmm. that you see the other side constantly regurgitate. Yeah, well, since it is your job to get your message out, um, there's usually a lot of forums for executive branch elections and things like that, um, but people often don't know about them. So can you tell us about any campaign events or forums going on um, in the next few weeks or months that you'd like to highlight for listeners? Sure. The you know the, the largest one will obviously be the forum that uh, KET will broadcast. Uh, ours has been scheduled for October 2nd. So uh, that will be the, the, the biggest opportunity for people to see me and my opponent head to head in a large forum. Uh, there, there are going to be a variety of uh, opportunities uh, in the next few months. Uh, the, the, the Sheriff's Association is having an event that they've invited all of the statewide candidates to come. So uh, there will be plenty of opportunities, but to where there will be access and uh, ability for your listeners to uh take a look and see uh, one-on-one that that KET um, forum will be the most uh, probably effective way to do that. Uh, other than that, you know, I, I am active on, on social media, on, on Facebook and Instagram and the app formerly known as Twitter. And the, uh, my website is bowmanforkentucky.com. So there's, there's an opportunity for anybody who wants to uh, be keyed in to be able to, to, to plug in those ways and, and get a little bit more information about what we're trying to do. All right. You probably just answered that question, this que- next question just now. But, uh, you know, if there are people who are interested beyond just like learning about you, but they want to get active, they want to help you out, they want to help you get elected, how can they, how can they do that? How can they help out the campaign? 
the same exact ways, uh, you know, connection through social media, uh, the website, uh, there's a way to connect, volunteer, contribute, uh, bowman4kentucky.com, spell it all out, <laughs> bowman4kentucky.com, and uh, that that will plug you directly into our campaign. Uh, we, you know, not only myself, but we're really trying to make an effort as a down ballot ticket to be unified in getting out across the state and making sure that everyone knows not just about us, but about the others. So, you know, people like Buddy Wheatley and for Secretary of State and Pam Steven, uh, Stevenson, for Colonel Pam Stevenson, uh, for Attorney General and Sierra Inlow for Commissioner of Agriculture and Kim Reader for Auditor. Uh, you know, we're trying to make sure that everyone knows that we're here to be a team for Kentucky, helping the governor do the job that he's done so well over the last three and a half years. And uh, this is the way to do it. So plug in bowmanforkentucky.com and of course show up and I'll be happy to see and talk to anybody at any event across the state all right well michael bowman thank you very much for being with us we really appreciate you being here today thank you i appreciate it too jasmine how can people get a hold of us they can find us on twitter that's what i am still calling it and instagram at my old ky pod they can like our facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice we also have a newsletter you can subscribe to. You can do that at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Demcast Network and the Forward Kentucky Network. Everybody stay tuned for some newsletter information that may be coming in the next few weeks. Uh, so just keep that uh, in your back pocket. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>